Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. God, I I pray that for each person that's walked in here. God, they come from all different weeks. They come from all different families. They come from all different backgrounds. But God, we want to come before you and ask that your presence would fall and would change us. That our hearts would be open to what you have for us. And that we would leave here not the same having gathered with the people of God and God's presence, that we would go forth from this place place, as the scattered church in our homes and in our families and in our workplaces and the places we have fun. God, would we take the gospel? Would we take your presence and what you've done in our lives with us? That this valley might see that there is a God in heaven and he's good and he wants to save. And he is orchestrating a plan that would blow us away. So God, do your work here this morning. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Thanks, Emmerts. Thanks, uh, worship team. That was, a, that was a great set, wasn't it? Man, it's just, it's just good to be with the people of God and rejoice and sing songs and celebrate what God's done for us. Well... My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, glad that you guys made it. Uh, you guys made it out of the turkey coma, right? Uh, stumbled your way to church. Uh, if your neighbor falls back into it and falls asleep, you have my permission as your pastor to whisper into their ear, I like turkey too. Um, and hopefully that wakes them up. I don't know if it will. I know I'm weird. You can send me an email later. Um, I appreciate the awkward moments of life. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be kicking off uh, our Advent series, as Matt talked about. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Advent, Advent's actually a season on the calendar. Uh, it's uh, a season in which we celebrate the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Advent actually uh, means uh, arrival or the coming of Jesus. And each week, uh, we're going to light a candle uh, and each candle was going to represent a different word or aspect of Advent uh, and its purpose and how we celebrate it. And uh, we'll light all those candles. And there's five candles because the fifth one is going to be lit on Christmas Day because church uh, or Sunday uh, happens to fall on Christmas this year. So I'm inviting all of you guys to come out in your PJs with your eggnog, with your coffee, uh, your kids can bring those toys that they just opened that they're going to get bored with in a week. Uh, bring it all. Uh, come on out. Uh, we'll, we'll sing some songs, read the Christmas story, uh, say a few words. We're going to just uh, have fun and enjoy Christmas as a church family uh, and celebrate uh, on that Sunday. It's going to be sweet, so I encourage you to come out. Uh, you can also expect that the next four weeks, uh, all of the sermons are going to coincide uh, with the candle lightings and the different words Uh, that we're going to unpack. And typically, a modern church unpacks four words. Uh, They usually unpack uh, love, joy, peace, and hope. Uh, But this year, we decided to change it up a little bit, uh, mostly because nobody said we couldn't, uh, so we did. 
and uh, we went with uh, the words waiting, anticipation, purpose, and then we did do uh, we or we did uh, include hope. Uh, for those of you who just start twitching when we we mess with uh, tradition or things you're used to, uh, don't worry, don't freak out. We can change the words of Advent. I promise, uh, lightning is not going to come in here and strike us. Uh, uh, tradition doesn't save; Jesus saves. Uh, and Advent is all about Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, uh, you can open them up to uh, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. It's the third gospel in the New Testament. I always like to say this, but use your table of contents if you need it. I'm a pastor, and sometimes I need it, so there's no shame here this morning. Um, This morning, uh, we're unpacking the word, as Matt had uh, said during the worship, we're unpacking the word waiting. Who here just loves to wait? Who here is just like, yeah, if there's there's something I can wait for, sign me up for that. I I, I still want to wait, right? Uh, Who here, I I don't think our culture works this way. Like, I, I don't know many of us who wake up all bright and bushy tailed and smiles and just glittering and be like, say to ourselves, you know what I can't wait for today? That I get to wait. That, that I get to go wait somewhere. That I, and then I get to wait again. And then I get to wait some more. Like, I, I highly doubt, especially during the Christmas season, that we're all running to our Facebook statuses and making them the best part about Christmas is the fact that I get to wait. Right? Most of, unless you're a Grinch and you just get on people because they decorate early, Christmas is awesome. Just let it happen. Just embrace it. Um, anyway, uh, I think we all hate the process of waiting. Our, our culture isn't just even indifferent towards waiting. We hate it. Like, we try to avoid it at all costs. We run away from waiting. How about, well, let's try these on for size uh, in terms of waiting. Anybody like to wait at the DMV? Right? How many of you go into the DMV and be like, I can't wait to just sit there with my ticket, right? And just sit there and sit there and just wait, Right? Uh, how many of us like to wait in line at the stores, right? I, I went to, I was one of those people. I went shopping on Black Friday this year. Um, I, I hadn't done it in years. I just figured Cyber Monday, like, took the crowds away. It doesn't. Um, I was in, like, three aisles wrapped around Target trying to just buy, like, some clothes for my kids. It was ridiculous. Uh, I, I don't think we like to wait uh, in lines, my wife nudged me in the, the first service, and she's like, can you believe that we only have to wait 10 more weeks uh, to see our new child? My, my wife is uh, pregnant, and we're due at the end of January. And I was like, man, 10 weeks, that time's going to fly by so fast. And, of course, Lace looks at me and was like, yeah, you don't have to sleep 10 more weeks, right? <laughs> when you get to that third trimester, and it's just not comfortable. Uh, how, how, let's try this one on for size. How many of us uh, like to wait in uh, line for the bathroom when it's really long and you really have to go, right? You're just kind of like, ah, I'm going to punch someone. Like, you know, uh, we, we don't like to wait in those kinds of lines either. My, my personal favorite, and this is like the, the true test of your hatred for waiting, is a traffic light, right? The traffic light, especially the ones that are just like, they're red for no reason. You're the only car at the stoplight. There's no one else that's anywhere near you within like 100 miles. And, and it's 10 times longer than all the other traffic lights you've ever been at, right? And you're just like, why? 
Why is this still red? Like, and you're, you have that little temptation in the back of your mind, like, I'm going to run this. I'm just going to run this. Like, there's no point in me waiting for this. This is why road rage exists. This is why people kill other people. I need a Xanax. Like, we, we, we all run into situations where waiting just drives us crazy. And then there's a, a unique category. If you're all like my wife, who has been waiting for the new season of Gilmore Girls, you guys are all in a different category all to yourself. Um, our, our culture, we just don't like waiting. We, we don't enjoy waiting. We avoid waiting like the plague. And we try our best to distract ourselves if we have to wait, right? Like how often do we just pull out the phone when we have like five minutes to spare? Because we're just not even comfortable just sitting there for five minutes doing nothing right? We're, we're not comfortable with boredom. We have to fill it with something. We're not comfortable with solitude. We're not comfortable with silence. Parents are like, amen. Um, but I think sometimes waiting can also quickly take us to a dark place, especially if we're waiting for something that's a little more serious. Like for maybe some of us, we We've waited, or maybe we are in the midst of these waiting experiences, where we're waiting for that doctor appointment where we could get some results that could mean life or death. Some of us might be waiting for a job that if we don't get hired, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills next month. Some of us might be waiting for that financial report that could spell disaster for next year. Waiting can take us to a dark place very quickly once the stakes are raised. Waiting can cause us to worry obsessively. Waiting can cause us to to be frustrated and to be angry very quickly. Uh, Waiting can cause us to be selfish, to be uh, interested in only our pursuits, to be very impatient people. Waiting can cause us to even doubt God's goodness and to turn to other things for fulfillment, believing that God's holding out on me. If only I had this, you fill in the blank for you, then I'd I'd really have what I need. And when it seems like God's not giving it to us, we run to other things and we expect them to fulfill us in only the way that God can. Or we, we turn to blatant sin because we can't endure the waiting period. And if I can just be honest, I think sometimes the holiday of Christmas just exasperates this, doesn't it? Preparing for the holiday and family coming into town and decorating and shopping and all that stuff. It just seems to bring out the worst that waiting sometimes causes. But I want to submit this morning that I think waiting has a unique power in our lives, if we allow God access, if we allow God to use the waiting in our lives, it can be used for his glory and for our good. We can actually be changed to look more and more and more like Christ during the waiting. And we have an option. We can either choose to let waiting destroy us, or if we allow God access, we can allow him to use it. See, see, Advent isn't just a holiday. A holiday is just one day of the year. It's, it's one day. It's a holiday, right? At, Advent is actually a season, which means it's a period of time. 
uh, we don't start Advent on December 25th. We start Advent four weeks leading up to December 25th. Therefore, by definition, because Advent is a period of time, that means it's also an invitation to wait. It's actually an invitation to discipline yourself, to enter into the discipline of waiting, that our hearts may embrace what God has for us when periods and seasons of severe waiting come into our lives. Even the small pieces of waiting, when we're you know, waiting at a traffic light, God can still use that to make us look more like him and for our good, just as much as he can use waiting for something very serious. And if we enter into Advent as a discipline to train ourselves, then we can actually embrace what God will have for us. I want to talk about three things this morning. That I, There's more, but I'm going to talk about three things that I think God has for us in periods of waiting. And, and if we really know what's offered to us in here, Guys, the manger and Jesus, God didn't offer us a holiday. God offered us a person. Christmas is merely a shadow of the things to come. If you put your hope in Christmas, I I got news for you, you're going to be disappointed. But if you put your hope in Jesus, then I will submit to you this morning that not only can you endure times of waiting, but that you can actually grow to look more like Jesus during the waiting. Guys, Jesus didn't come just to give you a free ticket into heaven. He's come to give you life right now. And part of that life is looking more and more like him. And he really does want to help us in the waiting. We all wait in life. And it's in those times that God especially, I think, wants to use those periods to transform us. So the first point that I have this morning is this. Waiting can change the way we pray. The biblical account of Christ's birth is full of people waiting everywhere. Everyone is waiting. If you read all the the different narratives and stories that are connected to the birth of Christ, there's so many people who are waiting. And so this morning, I want to take a look at two of them, a couple. So if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you're there. Luke chapter 1, I'm going to pick this up in verse 5. It says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he and his, uh, uh, sorry, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. We all wait for things in life, right? And if you haven't waited for anything in life, just wait, and you're going to wait. But I guess you've already waited, so I don't know how that statement works. But um, just wait, and you'll wait, and then you'll learn that you already waited. Uh, We all wait for things in life, and some things are more serious than others. But I think in this story, there's a unique kind of waiting, because there's a unique pain attached to it. And that is the pain of being told that you can't have a child. And as a a pastor, I would never say that I understand what that's like because I haven't gone through that. There there is just some things in life, we all experience pain in life, but there are some things in life, unless you've walked through them, you just don't know. And there's this numbness and this deep pain that almost pierces the soul of a couple who has sat in a doctor's office and heard that they are infertile, that they are barren. And, and, and for them, I would imagine that hope seems to be sort of this word that goes out the window. Because it's like, why hope for something that's impossible? It's not going to happen. And for Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were in this situation. But yet, I find their character remarkable. Because they continue to do something during this time. They continue to pray. We know this because Gabriel tells Zechariah, the Lord has answered your prayer. And then he follows it up with, and you will have a child. Thus, their prayer must have been, we want a child. And I want to talk about this a little bit because I think with this couple, we see that not only during times of waiting can our prayer increase, but even the way in which we pray can change. See, I think sometimes in church, we sort of put on our, our rose-colored glasses, and we start, uh, we start saying certain things without really thinking about them, and they don't land the right way. They're, they're not necessarily wrong, but they're just, they don't land the right way. Um, you know, and, and one of those uh, things is we say, oh, why don't you just pray about it? Why don't, why don't you just pray? Just pray for it, right? Uh, we, we say that advice a lot. And I think sometimes in particular situations, it can be sort of this empty truism that just doesn't really stick where it needs to. It's almost as if we're trying to guilt people into believing the biblical way. So, for example, if somebody is suffering and is barren and is unable to have a child, if I were to offer the advice, oh, why don't you just pray about it? 
it doesn't really land the right way. Because first off, most, most couples are going to look at me and say, are you kidding me? And we've been praying about this, right? Uh, and it makes it sound like, well, what are we doing wrong then? Are we not praying the right way? Like, are, are we not saying the right words? Are we not spiritual enough? Do we not have enough faith? And I think sometimes in our, our, our church culture, we, we say things, but we don't really understand where they're landing. Our, I think our intentions are right, and our advice is true, but I think we're not looking at it from the other perspective of the person. But I want to be honest with you guys this morning. The problem isn't necessarily advice. Telling people to pray is a good thing. We need to tell people to pray. I need you to tell me to pray. I need to pray. We need to pray. We all need to pray. But I think sometimes our problem isn't in how we give advice, but with what we believe about what prayer actually is. See, I think sometimes in the church, we tend to think prayer is this neat, tidy activity where we just sort of sit with our, our heads bowed and our eyes closed and our, our hands folded and we say these short, concise, theologically accurate statements, and that's our prayer, right? And, and I'm not saying you can't pray like that. If that's how you pray, that's awesome. I'm not saying you can't pray like that. But I want to challenge you a little bit. If you go to the book of Psalms, which is a pr- essentially a prayer book, there's more prayers in the book of Psalms than there are anywhere else in Scripture. And if you were to just read the Psalms straight through, and you were to actually imitate the way in which those prayers are given, I'm willing to bet that more often than not, you're not going to pray that way. Because the Psalms more often than not don't pray that way. Their prayers are more this raw, this more intense, this more messy fashion, where, where maybe you actually pace around for a while, or maybe you drop to your knees, Or maybe you even clench your fists and raise it to heaven. God is a big boy. He can take prayers like that. Sometimes I think we've domesticated prayer. Rather than understanding that God wants us to come before him with all of our emotion, with all of who we are, and just spit forth our pregnant statements of how we feel. And I use the pun there, on purpose. I think sometimes we miss the art of prayer and the way in which we're supposed to pray. I think sometimes God wants us to come before him and just say, I don't even know if feeling this way is the right way, but it's in my heart. I don't even know if what I'm thinking is the right way, but it's in my mind. God, I want to give it to you. And we just give that over to him. Let me give you an example. Psalm 130. You can turn there if you want, but it'll be on the screen. Psalm 130 says this. See, and, and I think maybe even we do this by the way we read Scripture sometimes. Like, I mean, I, I could read this like this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Like, if I were to read it like that, do you really think I'm communicating the emotion that David has when he wrote this psalm? Do you think he's praying like that when he originally prayed this? Or do you think it was something more like this? Oh, out of the depths I cry out to you, O God. 
Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you would be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul, would you wait? In his word, I hope. My soul, wait for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. I think sometimes we miss the emotion that God wants us to have in our, in our prayers. And, and don't, don't miss me on this because I think sometimes we, we, we keep the same kind of thinking. We just apply it differently, right? Um, and this is not manipulative prayer. This is not saying, okay, now if I show the right emotion, God's going to listen to my prayer. No, 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 no. That's not what we're getting at here. David went before God and said, God, I'm going to trust the results to you, but here's what's going on. Here's where I'm at. Messiness and all. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put my hope in you. I'm going to believe in your word. The results are up to you. I lay down my expectations, but man, this is driving me crazy. This is what's going on in my heart. This is where I'm at. That real honest emotion There is a level of trust that I think God wants us to get to. And sometimes only the waiting room is the only place where this can happen. It's in that place where we're forced to go to God and say, God, if you don't come through, I'm done. God, if you don't rescue in this moment, there is nothing else holding up the dam. It will crush me. God, if you don't come through and do the impossible, I'm in over my head. And the reason God wants us to get to that kind of a place is because it's in that place where you have to step out exposed and there is nothing left for you to trust in other than God. And that's precisely where God wants you. So that God can do his work. It's at this level where we actually trust God to do the impossible. That, that's not just empty lip, lip service. But we actually believe that deep down in our gut. Because we've walked through the waiting. We've stared down the abyss of impossibility. And yet we still believe that God can do the impossible because we have nowhere else to go. But we'll never get to that level unless we understand this prayer that God wants us to just give us, or or God wants us to give to him everything that's going on in our heart, everything that's going on in our mind, everything that's going on in our soul. Whether it's right or wrong, bring it to God. God wants to use the waiting periods in our lives to drive us to this kind of prayer if we're open to it. And here's the cool thing about Christmas. If you've prayed like this before or you want to pray like this before, you're beginning to peer into the story of what it was like for Israel leading up to the first Christmas. 
They were in a period of unbelievable anguish and waiting. As Matt talked about, there are, there's a 400-year gap between the, the Old Testament and the New Testament in your scriptures where God didn't say a thing. And during that time, Rome came in and just took over Israel. They were living in unbelievable oppression. They had lived so long as a nation. They had experienced exile. They had experienced unbelievable things. But some of those things were so far in the past, they were beginning to feel like fairy tales. It had been years, thousands of years since Abraham, since Isaac, since Jacob. And Israel was beginning to wane. God, are you ever coming? Are you ever going to do something? You've promised to us, where are you? And yet, you see God answer the prayer of a couple that is barren, waiting against all odds in an impossible situation for a child. Why does God come to Zechariah and Elizabeth first? Why are they sort of the first piece of this Christmas story? Because I think God wants to remind us and, and if you notice, he does the impossible with Mary, too. But I think our God wants to break onto the scene to show us that he is the God who's all about coming into impossible situations and showing you that with him, all things are possible. I think our God wants to break into history in such a way where when people say there's no way God can do anything here, and God wants to say, oh, yeah. I, I think he wants to re- reverse things almost in such a way where he stacks the deck against himself. Just to, just to magnify how awesome he is and his salvation really is. And it's in those moments where we actually begin to appreciate even more what God can do and what he has done for us. The only way we know how sweet salvation is is if we understand how horrible we are off. And yet God came into the midst of that. See, God wants to break into impossible situations to bring life to that situation, to show us that through Jesus, he has broken into our lives. And we are in an impossible situation because we are in need of being saved. And yet Jesus came in and broke into that situation to save us. See, God doesn't just steer history in sort of these incremental turns. When mankind sort of gets off the rails a little bit, he comes in and sort of gears them back on. That's not how God works. Mankind has never found his way. We've never known the right way. And when we did know the right way, it was only because God revealed it to us and we couldn't even live the right way. That's why Jesus needed to come in the first place because He enters into the barrenness of lost hopes and dreams in a world that's completely broken. And he begins to fix it. But it's only until you see your world that way will you understand and will you be in a place where the salvation of what God has provided becomes sweet. And it's only in the place of waiting, I think it's only in the place of waiting, where prayer of this kind forces us to go to God in such a way where he just seems unbelievably big. Church, I don't know about you, but I want to pray that way. 
I want a prayer life like that. I don't want these mundane, churchy prayers. I, I want real, gut-wrenching, honest stuff where we just go before the Lord and we ask Him to do something only He could do. That we would be forced to believe that He is the God of the impossible. My second point this morning is I believe that waiting can strengthen the way we obey. In Luke 1, verse 6, it says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous, that they walked blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of God. Here's what's so crazy about Zechariah and Elizabeth. So they are waiting in an unbearable pain for a child. And they are, they are advanced in age. This is an impossible situation. And yet they are still praying to God that he would break through and do something. And, oh, by the way, they are also living a life that is righteous, that is blameless. They are living to serve God. They are obeying him. Even though God has not answered their prayer, even though God has not delivered, Elizabeth and Zechariah are still obeying. Time out. Like, that is insane. Our culture doesn't work that way. We are in it for ourselves. If I can get something out of this, then I'm in this. But the minute I, I, I don't get anything for myself, I'm out. And yet there are so many people, and I'm sure you guys can relate to this. There are so many people in my past and, in, and, and currently even in my life right now that I know that have treated Christianity this way. I tried Christianity. I went to church. I prayed to God. I read my Bible. And the minute I asked him for something, he never delivered what I wanted. And I was out of there. And the irony of that statement is they are treating God how they would never want to be treated. If I came up to you and I said, hey, let's be friends. As long as you give me X, Y, Z, we're good. But the minute you don't give me that anymore, I'm out. We're no longer friends. Would, would you call me a very good friend? Would this be a good relationship? No. Then why do we do that to God? Why do we treat God that way? And I, and I think what's interesting, too, about waiting is I think there's this perception that during the waiting period, we, we just sit around and do nothing. We just, we just have to sit and do nothing. Um, and I'm not, there, there are times to, to be still before God, although I will say this, even being still is something. If I had to go do surgery on you like old school Civil War style, and I said, here, bite down on this. Don't move. Aren't you doing something? Like, because if you don't, I could cut the wrong thing and you're dead. Right? Even being still is hard. It's hard to, do, to, to not do that. It's doing something. But I think even in the midst of waiting, there is something uniquely powerful about still obeying God, even when he is silent, even when he hasn't responded to your demands. And I think sometimes... We, we forget that that's part of the waiting, is still continuing to serve, is still continuing to obey, even when God doesn't deliver. And even in the English language, we, we don't always use the word wait as in the sense of just sit around and do nothing. If, if I were to go to a restaurant this afternoon and I were to go into there and get, grab a seat, somebody's going to come up to me and say, well, good afternoon, my name is whatever, I'm here to be your waiter, right? 
The word is literally in there. Now, what kind of a waiter would they be, wait, or if they, if they were to just go to the bar and sit around and never come and serve me? They would not be a very good waiter. No, in that context, in that definition, a waiter means someone who serves. And in this context and waiting on God, it always means that we continue to serve him. And for Elizabeth and Zechariah, they waited on God and they served him. Now, here's what's really cool. I think sometimes that we just sort of have this picture of, oh, I'll just continue to obey God. I'll continue to obey God and I'll continue to obey God. And, and we forget that so often God wants to do the work in the waiting. Our eyes are on what's after the waiting. You know, like, I'll continue to obey God, I'll continue to obey God, but man, I can't wait till I get this. And I think God's like, yeah, that's going to be awesome. Don't, don't get me wrong, but I've got some things for you in the waiting. And I think one of the things he does is he actually increases the strength that we have and our ability to obey him during the waiting. And there's two things that I think come out of that strength. The first is patience, and the, and the second is steadfastness. If we obey God while we wait on him, I think we learn two things, or we get two things. One is patience, and the other is steadfastness. Uh, I play uh, guitar uh, sometimes, and not usually very well, but I like to play guitar. And one of the things I find fascinating about musical instruments, just in general, but you can use the guitar in this analogy, is the amount of patience required to learn an instrument. Like, you don't just pick up the guitar and play one day and be like, I am now the next Phil Keggy, or I can do what Jimi Hendrix does, right? I guess if you were Phil Keggy, you'd have to, like, cut off your ring finger. That would probably hurt. Um, but if you don't know who that is, he's an unbelievable classical guitar player. Anyway, uh, I, think, I think sometimes we, we underestimate the patience that's required on our part to say, no, this is going to take some time to learn this instrument. And in fact... In the midst of waiting, though, don't we have to practice? Like, we don't just go over to the guitar and be like, all right, I'll stand here for a month, I'll wait that long, and then I'll just learn how to play this magically, right? No, you have to pick up the guitar. It's going to take patience, it's going to take time, but you've got to pick it up, you've got to practice, you've got to learn rhythm, you've got to discipline your fingers to learn how to play the notes to where it's going to go, and, and you practice and you learn, and you grow in your patience, of understanding the instrument and learning how to play. But the other thing about a guitar that I find really cool is the more you play the guitar, especially on a consistent basis, there's these things that begin to develop on the end of your fingers called calluses because you've been playing so much on the strings. When you first start playing guitar, it hurts your fingers. But the more you play, the more these calluses develop and what the calluses do is allow you to play for a longer period of time. You can play a longer period of time without your fingers hurting. You, and it's awesome because you can play numerous songs in a row and you don't tire out. It's in these calluses that your fingers become firm or to use the word steadfast. So you need patience to learn the guitar, but you need the calluses in order to be steadfast in playing it. 
And this is similar to how waiting can strengthen the way we obey God. See, when we learn patience and we learn steadfastness, the longer we obey, the longer we wait on the Lord, the longer we serve the Lord in the midst of obedience, the more we're going to learn patience and steadfastness. See, our obedience develops patience. Or I love that actually the way, it's one of the few times I really like the King James Version. Uh, but they translate patience, uh, long-suffering. I just think that's a much better word uh, for, uh, or I guess it's two words, but I just think it's a much better expression of patience. Because um, that implies then that the opposite of patience would be giving up really quickly. It would be grumbling or complaining, man, I got to do this again. Or it would be getting angry very quickly, short-tempered. And that's actually, biblically speaking, that's the opposite of patience. Patience then would be, I'm not going to grumble. I'm not going to complain. I'm going to look to see what the best is I can get out of this situation. And I'm going to be patient. I'm not going to get angry and frustrated very quickly. Furthermore, the longer we wait, our obedience develops steadfastness. I love to interpret that word. It means staying power. It means I am planted firm. You're not going to be able to move me, right? It's, it's that position of like, you, you, you can't do much to move me. And, and like the calluses, like it's staying power. It means you can play the guitar for a long period of time. The more you wait, the more that steadfastness develops Here's something that is really cool that happens. When God doesn't deliver over a period of time, a long period of time, you're not quick to check out on God. You're not quick to run over here and say, God hasn't answered my prayer, so I just got to give in to this sin over here for a little bit. And then I'll come back to him. No, no, no. That's not steadfastness. Steadfastness is saying, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. Because I know at the end I get God. And even in the midst of that, do you see how God actually changes us? That he gives us patience and he gives us steadfastness. James 5, I think, says it really well. James 5, 7 through 11. You can turn there if you want. Or again, this one will be on the screen so you can follow along. James 5, 7 through 11, it says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. If I'm a farmer and I just go out into the barn and I'm like, I'm just going to wait here for the rains to come and magically corn's just going to come out of the ground, right? Do, do farmers do that? No, they go out to the land and they say, I'm going to till the soil. I'm going to weed out everything. I'm going to put scarecrows to keep birds away. I don't know if they still do that, but uh, they're going to, whatever farmers do, I'm not a farmer. I'm a, I grew up on the Florida coast. Um, whatever farmers do to prepare the land, right? What's out of their control is the rain. The rains come whenever they want. That's God's dealing, but they are, they're diligently preparing the land so that when it does come, they are ready. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
The question I think we're left with this morning is how did Zechariah and Elizabeth find the power to obey? See, I, 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 here's Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? They're, they're praying, they're obeying. But, but how did they find the power to keep going, to develop the strength that they needed? Did they just gut it out? Or was there something else? I would submit this morning that there is something else. And the something else is something that they were looking towards and that you and I look back on. And that is the salvation that is brought in Christ. And this brings me to my last point. Waiting can increase our dependency on God's salvation. Zachariah and Elizabeth were looking towards the salvation that God was providing. And that alone drove them to wait for God to show up in their lives. Picking back up the story in Luke chapter 1. The story continues in verse 57. Luke chapter 1, it says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all the things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember, to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I love that song that Zechariah just bursts out into. So here you've got Zechariah, and he's living in this anguish of waiting. And he's praying to God, right? And, and, and he's obeying God. Even though God isn't delivering, he's still praying in that raw emotion. He's trusting God with the results. And he's obeying even though God isn't delivering. And then... Finally, when God does intervene, he blows it. He doubts God. And it's not that curiosity doubt that Mary had. It's a prideful doubt that demands God give an, expect- or an explanation on, on Zechariah's terms. And so Gabriel makes him silent for nine months. And it's like, dude, come on, man. Like, have you not learned the lesson of waiting? You had to wait years to be a father. You had to wait your whole life to go into the temple to burn incense and now you have to wait nine months to speak again. But here's the cool thing about God. 
if we don't wait for him, if we struggle in the waiting for him, God is there to meet us with unbelievable patience. If we don't wait for God, God is awesome at waiting for us. See, he doesn't tell Zechariah when Zechariah blows it, well, fine then, I'm going to go find some other couple who's grateful. No, he, he works with them. He stays with them. He's patient with them. God is totally patient with us, and God in his perfect timing brings about his salvation to us. There's a phrase in that verse that says, he remembered his covenant to Abraham. It doesn't mean that God remembered in such a way where, like, like our culture, because we use that word weirdly in our culture. It, it's not like God somehow forgot, oh, yeah, now I need to save people. Let's go do this. Like, it's not like God's remembering. He's like he's that fourth grader who just woke up that morning and was like, oh, no, that science project is due today. Like, that, that's not the way in which he remembers. God remembers more like a man who is madly in love with his uh, bride. And he has been planning year after year after year, all the while remembering his love and his promise that he made to his wife on his wedding day for that anniversary that they're going to celebrate. And he's going to wow her. That's the way in which God remembers his plan to save mankind. And in fact, Zechariah's name means God remembers. This is where Zechariah and Elizabeth find their strength to obey and pray in the waiting. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they don't pray that the power doesn't come because they are trying to get something from God and manipulate him. The power comes from trusting that God has promised salvation. That's their deepest need. They don't obey God to somehow get God to answer them, to somehow wait until God has finally fulfilled what they're really asking for. They obey God because they're trusting in the promise of salvation. That's what they really need. They believed God was a God who remembered and had been planning salvation since the garden. And that's where their dependence lies. You cannot obey God and you cannot pray to him in a biblical way unless you understand your fundamental need for salvation. One of my all-time favorite pictures in just in general, is this one. I loved it so much I had it framed, and it, it's in my office. And you can't really see the bottom on this one, but on this, the full picture, uh, there's actually a serpent that's wrapped around uh, Eve's leg, and then Mary's actually stepping on its head. And this comes from Genesis uh, uh, 3.15 that we read earlier, where, where God will crush uh, Satan through the seed of Eve. But one of the things I love about the picture is their facial expressions. Eve is just disappointed and ashamed. But Mary, Mary's facial expression is one of hope. Oh, Eve, lift up your head. If only you knew what my boy will do. If only you know what the baby inside my tummy is going to accomplish. And we see what he's going to accomplish in the song that Zechariah gives. He will save us from our enemies. He will fulfill all the ancient promises that God has given. He will forgive our sins. He will deliver us so that we can serve him without fear for all of our days. He will bring light to all the dark places in the world. He will guide us into a life of peace. True peace, not just the absence of conflict. He is a merciful uh, God, who is mer- uh, has mercy that is abundant on our sins. He is gracious with us, abounding with gifts from heaven. And perhaps most importantly of all, Eve, if you would understand that God wants to give you himself. 
then you understand the point of Christmas. He gives us himself. For Zechariah and for Elizabeth, the point of obedience, the point of prayer, the point of all the waiting was that they understood that salvation at its primary focus, the promise of salvation was the fact that they were going to get God himself. And that's what they waited for. In Advent, we aren't waiting on presents or circumstances to change or the fulfillment of unmet expectations. In Advent, we are waiting on God himself to be with us. And it's in Christmas that we find our foundation that all the waiting periods in our life are worth the while if we allow God to use them. Would you pray with me? God, I ask, God, that somehow you would take these words and do the work that you need to do in the hearts and lives of the people represented here. Jesus, I I pray that Christmas this year, God, our hopes wouldn't go in a holiday. Our hopes would go in the person behind the holiday. Jesus. I pray, God, that as we enter into the Advent season, we would use it as a time to discipline ourselves of what waiting looks like so that when we enter into the waiting periods of our lives and the world peers in, what they see baffles them because they see people who are choosing to pray to a God, expecting God to do something on his terms and not theirs. That they are a people who obey God even when God doesn't deliver the thing that they are asking for. God, because that kind of devotion, that kind of relationship will intrigue the world. What kind of God is this that you serve? May we be people who wait well. And may you get all the glory. And may this Christmas season, God, we see that at the end of the day, The salvation that you have provided for us in Christ is worth the wait. And may that overwhelm us. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. So go in God's grace that you may wait well, that you pray, that you obey, and that you depend on his salvation. You're dismissed.